The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. We turned last evening to Galatians chapter 2. For this session and for the next, we're turning over to Galatians chapter 5. Paul's letter to the Galatians and chapter 5. We're going to read some of this chapter and then a few verses from chapter 6 as well. Starting at verse 1, Galatians 5, starting at verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And we give thanks to God for his word to us this morning and again implore his blessing as we spend these moments together. One of the things that the Bible is at pains to impress on us 
is that it is impossible to become a Christian without being radically changed. That's what we were thinking about last evening from Galatians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 6. How does the Christian life begin? It begins with nothing less than a death and a resurrection. Christ and the sinner who have been separated are united to one another. And by virtue of our union with him, we die to sin and rise again to newness of life. The life in which sin held sway is now over. And it is now the indwelling Christ who by the Holy Spirit has the mastery of us. Here is the same truth from another angle, though at first sight it may seem to have nothing whatsoever to do with it. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, God's law. What's Paul telling us now? He's telling us exactly what he has told us before. You can't become a Christian without being radically changed. It's the same truth, just looked at from a different angle. So let's take a moment or two to try and unpack it. Not under the law. That has nothing to do with the role of God's law, the Ten Commandments in the life of the Christian. It's very easily misunderstood but it doesn't have anything to do with that. But it does have everything to do with what we were before we became Christians. Think about it. As we can, if we are believers, with spirit-taught minds. Make it personal to yourself. You hadn't yet become a Christian. Grace hadn't yet enter the picture. It was just you and the law. What did that law do? Well, it told you how you should live. It told you what was right and what was wrong, and it commanded you to do the right and forbade you to do the wrong. What else did it do? Did it help you to obey? No. What about when you sinned? Did it help you then? Far from it. It had no forgiveness to offer whatsoever. On the contrary, it condemned you. The law, in fact, made matters worse for us in our unconverted days because our sinful hearts took occasion from what the law commanded us to do, to do the very opposite. And so, sin's grip over us actually became stronger. That's what it means to be under law, to be under the law. It is all about being guilty, helpless, condemned, enslaved, with no power to live a holy life. In Romans 6, however, Paul tells us that we are not under law, but under grace. And here in Galatians 5, verse 18, he shows us what grace has done. 
It has given us the Spirit to lead us. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we need to think for a little now about the leading of the Spirit. Paul uses identical language, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, led by the Spirit. It's another of those expressions that can be very easily understood, misunderstood, not under the law. That can be easily misunderstood. So too, led by the Spirit. It is so easy to think guidance. All these important decisions that we have to make in life about college, about our job, about marriage, about ministry opportunities, about retirement. We need the Spirit's leading. We need God's leading, and we do. But that's not what is in Paul's mind in Romans 8 and Galatians 5. Being led by the Spirit, rather, is all about being under the Spirit's control and direction. It is all about the Holy Spirit shaping how we think and speak and act and worship. So let's tie that in with our theme, a holy life. What is the connection between the leading of the Spirit and living a holy life? It can be answered very simply. The Holy Spirit, first of all, sets the direction of a holy life, and then enables us to take it. Direction. Paul speaks in verse 16 about walking in the Spirit. And in verse 25, he speaks about keeping in step with the Spirit. It is as if the Spirit gives us our marching marching orders and leads us forwards making clear the direction in which we are to go. And our duty is to keep in step with him as he does so, and to go where he takes us. But there's more to it than that. Otherwise, the Spirit would be nothing more than the voice of God's law to us. Through the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Spirit does set the direction He marks out for us the path that we are to take. He tells us how we are to live, but he is also in us to help us. To be led by the Holy Spirit is not just to have the right way pointed out to us. It is to have the Holy Spirit with us and in us to enable us to take that path. We are not, in other words, without resources. We're not where we were in our unregenerate days when it was just the law telling you what to do and offering you no help whatsoever to take that way. It has all been summed up by Leon Morris very simply, very succinctly. We live our lives, he says, with the help and direction of the Holy Spirit. We go forward in life together. He, through the Word, showing us the direction in which we are to go, and we, in His strength, taking that way. 
Well, later on this morning in our final session, we are going to focus on something that we become as we follow the Spirit's leading, namely beautiful with the beauty of Christ, as we bear more and more of the fruit of the Spirit. In this session, I want to focus your thoughts on one of the places to which the Spirit, the Spirit's leading takes us, namely into a war zone, a battlefield. I think about the Lord Jesus after his baptism. The Spirit leads him into the desert. To do what? To battle with the great enemy of souls. And the Spirit leads us into battle too. In our case, to do battle with Satan as well, but also with what Paul calls here and in Romans, the flesh. To walk in the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit, to follow the leading of the Spirit means being soldiers. And this is the enemy whom every day we have to encounter, the flesh. There is no holy living possible, no holier living possible, unless in fellowship with the Spirit of Christ we wage unrelenting war with the flesh. So we need to begin by asking what it is. What does Paul mean by the flesh? In verse 13, he insists that we do not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And in verse 16, he assures us that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Then in verse 17, he speaks about how the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and how the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Then in verses 19 and following, he gives us a list of what he calls the works of the flesh. And then in chapter 6, verse 8, he warns us about sowing to the flesh. He uses it over and over again. What does he mean by the flesh? Well, let me begin with what he doesn't mean. When Paul uses the word flesh, he's not thinking about the part of the body that surrounds or clothes our bones. I think of what happened when the Lord Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. You remember how they were frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit or a ghost. And he says, touch me and see. For, no, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. It's talking about a part of the body. But that's not the sense in which Paul uses the word flesh here in Galatians 5 and in a whole host of other places. The reference is rather, and this is how the NIV translates it, to our sinful natures or to our evil hearts. We'll go back to the Garden of Eden, to the very beginning of things. God made us sinless. Our natures, our hearts were altogether free from the presence and the taint and the impulses and the power of sin. And then came the fall. 
And with the fall came the corruption of our nature, sin tainting everything, and we are not yet rid of it. Notwithstanding the radical change that has taken place as we have died to sin and risen to life in union with Christ. Sin doesn't have the power over us that it once did, but it is still there, and it is still active, and it is still powerful, and it has lost none of its character as sin. It's the reality that lies back of Paul's exhortation in Romans 6, verses 12 and 13. Do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. You understand what that language implies? It's the same truth as we're seeing here in Galatians 5. Sin itself has not been annihilated. It has not been killed outright. It is still an active power in us, pushing us, drawing us towards sinful behavior. Link it in, please, because this is so very important to avoid confusion. Link it in with the radical change that we were thinking about last evening, which we've touched on this morning, and in particular, how in Romans 6, it is described in terms of death and resurrection, dying to sin and rising to newness of life. I can well imagine a true, sincere, earnest Christian wrestling with that language and wondering if it has really happened, fearing groundlessly that it hasn't. You see, they know only too well that sin is alive. They're conscious of it every day, and it's a struggle. And all these defeats of which they are ashamed and which brings them every day in confession to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they come to Romans 6, and and they read about this death and resurrection. And perhaps they hear some popular but misguided interpretation of what that is all about, and they begin to wonder if it's true of them. Do they know anything of this dying to sin and rising in Christ to newness of life and concluding wrongly that they don't? And that is why, brothers, we have to be so careful not to push this language of death and resurrection beyond what it is intended to teach. What has ended is not sin's existence, but sin's domination. What Christ has put to death when he comes into us At the moment of conversion, what Christ has put to death is not sin itself, but the old life in which sin held sway. Because of him, it no longer has the enslaving control over us that it once did. That's why we can now live a holy life, a life that is pleasing to God 
But sin itself, sin itself is still in us as a tempting, troubling, tripping up power. Ever seeking to regain its old mastery. Which brings us to a second matter. We've thought about what the flesh is. Now in the second place, what it wants. Paul speaks in verses 16 and 17 about the desires of the flesh. What does it want? Well, in the light of Romans 6, to begin with Romans 6, we can answer that question in a single word. Control. It wants back what it has lost. I think of an evil man ruling for a very considerable time over a particular country and the misery with which he overspreads it by his cruelty and his greed. And then he is deposed. He is replaced by a good man, a righteous man, and there's, there's joy throughout the country at this new beginning. But this bad man is not yet dead. And for years he gives his people trouble as he seeks to get back what he has lost. So with sin, it wants its thrown back. That's why in Romans 6, Paul urges us in the way that he does. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. That's what it wants. And then he gets specific. Do not present your members to sin. That's the parts of our body. Do not present them to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Don't put the parts of your body at the disposal of sin. Sin wants to use our eyes so that we will look at things we shouldn't look at. It wants to use our ears so that we will listen to things we shouldn't listen to. It wants to use our tongues so that we will say things that we shouldn't say. It wants to use our limbs so that we will go places we shouldn't go and do things that we shouldn't do. It wants to use our brains so that we will think things and plan things and imagine things and create things that we shouldn't. And Paul says, don't let it. So we've answered the question in the light of Romans 6, what does the flesh want? It wants to reign. It wants to have the mastery over us. Let's answer it now from Galatians 5. In verses 19 to 21, Paul gives us a list of what he calls the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He calls them the works of the flesh. Here are sins whose existence is to be traced 
to our possession of a sinful nature, an evil heart. And it is to just such sins that the desires of our natures prompt us. What does the flesh want? It wants us to be sexually immoral. It wants us to be impure. It wants us to be jealous. It wants us to get drunk. It wants us to be divisive. It wants us to give way to righteous anger and a whole lot of other things besides what it is. Our evil hearts, our sinful natures, what it wants, the mastery. And all these specifics that Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5. Let's turn in the third place to a very sobering matter indeed. What will happen if we give it what it wants? What will happen if we give it? what it wants. Second half of verse 21. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you turn over a couple of pages, if you've got a Bible, turn over a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter 5. And there you will hear the Apostle Paul striking exactly the same note. And reading chapter 5 from verse 3 of Ephesians. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. How plainly and soberingly does the apostle speak If you give the flesh what it wants, you will have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. You will not inherit the kingdom itself. Paul's looking forward to the blessedness of God's future reign in the lives of his people and in their new world. Paul speaks in Ephesians 1 of the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit as a down payment or first installment of our inheritance. You see, there is much more to come, much more. And when Jesus comes back, that much more will be ours. There is a fullness of kingdom blessing that God has in store for his beloved people. And Paul says to us, you give the flesh what it wants, And that fullness will be denied to you. It will never be yours. Now, that does not mean that if a Christian falls into one or other of these sins that Paul has listed, it's all up with him. 
that they're lost. True believers not only can, but do fall at times into grievous sin. And it's always a sad thing when it happens. But it is not of lapses that Paul is speaking here. Paul is speaking about capitulation. So surrendering ourselves to the desires of the flesh that it becomes the way that we live. Our sins become the habitual features of our lives. Well, they may give you a bad conscience for a time until you succeed in shutting your conscience up. They may give you fears and bad dreams for a time, but you do them. You're enslaved to them. Such a person, says the apostle, unless there is repentance, will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is a warning to the unholy. Let me speak very plainly. Do not imagine that if you are giving free reign to the desires of your flesh and living in habitual commission of one or other of these sins that Paul has listed, you will inherit the kingdom of God. You will not. Heaven is for the holy. It is not for the willfully and habitually and impenitently unholy. And oh, how telling it is that Paul immediately goes on in Ephesians 5 to say, let no one deceive you with empty words. An echo of Hebrews appealed to us not to be deceived through the deceitfulness of sin. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It is a warning to the unholy. But his words are also a warning to the holy, to those who are taking sin seriously and seeking in the Lord's strength to fight on in this battle against the flesh. One of the ways in which God keeps us persevering in that warfare is by warning us as to what will happen if we give it up. It is perfectly true that genuine Christians will not give up the fight. Or to put it in Romans 6 terms, sin shall not have dominion over you. But it is equally true that we must not give up the fight. We must not. For if we do, it will cost us everything. Hence the apostle's exhortation to refuse to let sin reign over us to say no to its desires, to have our members at its disposal, that it might lead us into sin. So we're thinking about the flesh. And we thought about what it is. And we thought about what it wants. And we thought about what will happen if we give it what it wants. Now in the fourth place, how the Spirit wants the opposite of what it wants. 
Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. It's one of these strokes of realism for which we are so grateful. What do we find, and again I'm speaking to those of you who are genuine Christians, what do we find when we look at what's going on in our hearts? Don't we find ourselves at times being pulled in two different directions toward sin and away from it? Sin has its attractions, doesn't it? And we feel the attraction of sin. It's to our shame, but we do. But it's not the whole picture. We are also drawn to holiness. We feel the attraction of holiness. And here is why. It is because of the presence and the character and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. He has come to live in us. Or to link it with our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ has come to live in us by the Holy Spirit. And the result, the inevitable result, is that while a sin is still active and strong, it doesn't have all its own way. There is now a clash of desires. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. In our hearts there are these opposing desires. What is the sinful flesh desire? Well, we've touched on that already, haven't we? It's there in that list of its works, the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, and so on. It is to just such sins, as we have seen, that the desires of our fallen natures prompt us. And every one of them is hateful to the Holy Spirit. Every act of the sinful nature is utterly contrary to what He wants. There's not a sin in that list that is not loathsome to the Spirit of Christ. So the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And then we have this other side of the coin, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. What does he want? He wants the very opposite. He wants us to be sexually pure. He wants us to worship only God. He wants us to live in peace with one another. He wants us to be self-controlled. Or to come down to verses 23 and 24, he wants what the apostle calls the fruit of the Spirit. He wants us to be characterized by the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the gentleness and the self-control that he is in us to produce. We go back again to this matter of a radical change. What happens when we become Christians? We are radically changed. We are not what we were 
when in the language of Romans 8, we were in the flesh, living, as the NIV puts it, according to the sinful nature. There was no force at work in our hearts to make us want to be holy then. No divine spirit whose desires were contrary to the flesh. The flesh commanded the field. No longer. There has been an invasion of grace. There has been the conquest of grace. Now the Spirit of Christ is in us, and He wants the opposite of what the flesh wants. And yes, it, it creates a scene of conflict, an experience of conflict. But it is an infinitely more blessed position to be in, to be in this battlefield, this war zone, than to be where we once were when the flesh had it all its own way. Thank God it doesn't. The Spirit of Christ is in us, and He wants the very opposite. So the picture is building up, isn't it? We thought about what the flesh is, and we thought about what it wants, and we've thought about what will happen if we give it what it wants. And we thought about how the Holy Spirit who lives in us wants the opposite of what the flesh wants. And now, fifthly, how by walking in the Spirit we will deny what the flesh wants. By walking in the Spirit we will deny what the flesh wants. Verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul is encouraging us to walk by the Spirit, or walk in the Spirit. And then in verse 18, he speaks about being led by the Spirit. And in verse 25, about living in the Spirit. In verse 25 again, he speaks about keeping in step with the Spirit. And in chapter 6, sowing to the Spirit. Now, these are not exactly interchangeable terms. Each has its particular nuance. But they have all to do with the one way of living under the control and direction of the Holy Spirit. What will happen if that's how we live if we follow the Spirit's leading, if in His strength we do what He directs us to do, we will deny the flesh what it wants. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In His strength, we will say no to the flesh. So we come back to where we started. Not under the law, as that term is to be properly understood. We are not without the spiritual resources that were absent when it was just the law and ourselves. God doesn't call us to wage war 
against the flesh without equipping us for the fight. He has given us the Spirit. The Spirit lives in our hearts to oppose His desires to the desires of the flesh and with this object in mind. So that the flesh is denied what it wants, so that instead we live as God wants us to live. Holy lives, lives of obedience, of thankfulness, of worship, lives that are rich in the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the gentleness and the self-control that the Spirit of God is in us to produce. Three words as I bring this second exposition to a close. Three words. And the first is realities. Realities. Verse 17 closes on an ambiguous note. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Those words, as those of you who have expounded this passage, these words have been understood, are understood in different ways. They could mean that the outcome of this conflict of desires is that we don't do what the flesh wants us to do. We deny it its gratification. The members of our body are not put at the disposal of the flesh. The works of the flesh are absent. Alternatively, it may mean that the outcome of this conflict between the flesh and the spirit is that we don't always do what the spirit wants us to do. Paul may mean that such is the strength of remaining corruption that we don't always do what the Spirit directs us to do, the Spirit desires us to do. And my preference is for that second interpretation, that because of the strength of indwelling sin, we don't always do what the Spirit desires us to do. We do know what it is to capitulate to the desires of the flesh. That is certainly the reality, isn't it? It's the very thing I'm persuaded that Paul takes up at greater length in Romans 7. Now, I know that opinions differ as to how we are to interpret Romans 7, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to whereabouts you stand in that particular position. But I have to say for myself that every time I come back to Romans 7, the conviction is renewed that Paul is speaking about his struggles as a man of God. He has died to sin. Sin no longer has the mastery over him in the way that it did when he was an unconverted man. But such is its remaining strength that he does not always do what in his renewed heart he longs to do. 
When I would do good, evil is right there with me. And he falls and elicits this anguish cry, O wretched man that I am, realities. The Spirit has led us into battle. We are at war every day with the flesh, and there are defeats. The flesh, because of its strength and and subtlety and persistence in this way and that way, gets the upper hand. And that's why confession is such a daily part of our prayers, isn't it? And we have to ask the Lord for his forgiveness every morning, every night, through the day. Reality, so that's the first word. But secondly, if in Galatians 5 and Romans 7 we touch on realities, we need also to think about possibilities. That's the second word, possibilities. There's no escape from conflict, no discharge in this war. We are going to be soldiers all our days. Some of you have served in the military, and it's behind you now. Not with this war. We're going to be soldiers all our days. But if we walk in the Spirit, if we keep in step with the Spirit, if we follow the leading of the Spirit, if we sow to the Spirit, the issue will be a life of deepening holiness. We will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Our lives will be increasingly pleasing to God. We will grow in conformity to the image of Christ. We will bear more and more of the fruit of the Spirit, possibilities. And you understand what I mean by that word possibilities. We don't dream of perfection this side of eternity. But brothers, with the mighty Spirit of Christ within us, there is enormous potential. There is extraordinary potential for growth. And with that growth, a capacity for Christian service and the enjoyment of God greater than any yet attained which brings me to my third and last word, actions. Actions. Walk in the Spirit. Live in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. We are to follow the Spirit's leading. We are to sow to the Spirit. Victory over sin, growth and holiness don't just happen. It's not a matter of passively sitting back and just letting it all happen. No. There is a path that under the Spirit's leading we are to take, and that path is clearly marked out for us in Holy Scripture. There are duties at home, at work, within the family, within the church, that in His strength we are to fulfill 
There are means of grace, public and private worship, that with his help we are to use. There are sins, Romans 8, that in the strength of the indwelling Spirit we are to put to death. Disciplines of prayer and Bible study that we are to practice. And there is for each of us a church in whose life we are to immerse ourselves. That is how the possibilities are to be realized. <laughs> Actions in his strength, taking his direction in his strength. As it works itself out in all these different ways. Brothers, with the Lord's help, let us endeavor to do these things. And then, then we may expect to grow in holiness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, there is not a day that passes when we're not ashamed of what we find in our hearts and in what awful ways at times that becomes apparent in the things that we say and do. Forgive us. How we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that keeps on cleansing us day after day. And we thank you for the Spirit of Christ, our Father in heaven, who lives in us to help us in this warfare with the flesh. And we pray that in his strength we may wage this war every day. How we thank you that the flesh does not command the field as it once did. How we thank you for the invasion of grace. How we thank you that we are not what we once were. And we pray that you will help us, Holy Father, to take these steps in the spirit strength that will enable us to grow in holiness. Lord, we have heard a warning note being struck this morning and we pray for any in this building in whom the flesh still reigns, any who profess to be believers and whom the sinful nature is powerfully at work and they are engaging in sinful behavior, perhaps their hearts becoming very hard. Lord, be merciful, we pray, and bring such to repentance. Let them not be deceived. We pray, Lord, that you will help us, each one, to exhibit that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for this second session. Bless us as we talk together and, and help us as we come to this final session in a little while. 
Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.